the uh, A couple of retreats ago with Sadaw Utejaniya, I was kind of observing the yogis moving about with him during the open schedule. There's people you know, coming and going, doing their own thing. And we thought, oh, we should call the yogis uh, free-range yogis. <laughs> And we thought, well, they're actually organic free-range yogis. <laughs> sort of the natural, natural yogis. <laughs> natural, organic, free-range. These are such nice things to be called. <laughs> it's popular these days. Natural, this word nature. It is kind of fundamental to what we're doing in this uh, path of discovery. It's like we're familiarizing ourselves with our own mind and heart, our body. It's amazing that the thing most dear and close to us can actually become quite distant. Through the process of seeking security and safety, it's so easy to close down to our emotions, to what's really happening for us. As Andrea was mentioning, these kind of core wholesome wishes can move us in a direction that without right views, without knowing how to achieve what our core wishes are, that we can in fact move in the other direction, seeking a sense of security and safety. We move away from the vulnerable the painful, the insecure. We try to organize our life in a way that brings a sense of safety, brings a sense of being in control. And the more that we hear about the way things are, and we come to taste it a bit for ourselves, that as much as we wish for the mind to behave, behave well, We'd like the mind and heart to radiate loving kindness all the time. Have you been able to do that? And just something simple, seeing how the mind has its own momentum, its own habits, can point to the way things are. So someone had written a question. I thought I might explore this a little bit. It's in the territory of, sort of in the territory of views, and it says, you mentioned cause and effect, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind going into more detail. The first question was, what is this exactly? 
What is cause and effect? I think before I came to the Dharma, it was, I didn't have any clarity about my life. I didn't really know why there was suffering or my understandings of what the suffering was about was very confused and clouded. In the Dharma, when we talk about cause and effect, we're really beginning to point to unlawfulness to this life. It's like the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry. We use laws in engineering, electrical, electronics. When we look into the mind, the Buddha was really, in some ways, a scientist looking into the laws of the mind, that there is a lawfulness that's unfolding, cause and effect. That it isn't random what we're going through. And if it were just random, random mind states, one mind state following another randomly, moods arising randomly, think thoughts arising randomly, suffering arising randomly, joy arising randomly, mindfulness arising randomly. There'd be really no way to cultivate this mind and heart. There'd be no way to have a path of development. Our present actions would have no impact on the next moment. There wouldn't be consequences, either wholesome or unwholesome consequences. This is the beginnings of seeing the lawfulness of our life, lawfulness of how the heart uh, unfolds, how our sense of well-being unfolds. When we really look into this, it can give us a lot of confidence that when there is some sense of suffering in the mind, we can begin to have confidence that oh, there is a cause. Increasingly, for my own practice, I'd say that a very strong reminder to wake up is actually feeling some unpleasantness in the sense of the unpleasantness of dukkha, of suffering. I've seen this so many times that it's so clear that if there's something that I'm struggling with, some, some anguish in the heart or mind, it's so clear at this point It may not be seen, but there's so much confidence that if I don't look closely enough, the root cause is in the mind. And the same 
can go for pleasant mind states when we're free of this stress or struggle and there's a sense of balance in the mind, sense of ease, relaxation, there's a cause. Very often when things are going well, our life is sailing along smoothly, it's very easy to fall asleep. We don't notice, we don't wake up. In fact, it's said in the story of the Buddha that you know, he was from a royal family, uh, prince, and he had everything that he could imagine. All of his sense doors were being satisfied, and according to the story, he was being protected from the nature of things, the reality of seeing suffering. And when he went out of the palace, he came across sick person, an aging person, and a corpse. And these were like lightning bolts in his mind. It woke him up out of the illusion that he could just sail through life free of any suffering. That when he wasn't yet fully awake, fully free, that he too was going to be tormented by reacting to the way things are. Just very simply, when we are on retreat and kind of think about what is it that's leading to this sense of ease that's starting potentially to arise, that the mind is getting more settled. What's the cause of that? And I think when we don't look carefully, it's very easy to assume it's the retreat. And the treat is making it peaceful. The treat is making the mind balanced. It's almost like we're missing an opportunity to understand that it's the use of the mind in a skillful way, that there is moments of mindfulness, moments of seeing reactivity and opening to that. So the exploration of the mind and body are beginning to take place. There's more clarity. We come back to our senses more often. And it's all supported by the atmosphere, the seeing fellow beings practice, hearing the Dharma frequently. But it's mind moments, wholesome mind moments, impacting one another. And it has an effect. And then when we let the reins go of our practice and we start sailing through life again, the quality of our mind begins to 
change and potentially get more coarse and mind mindfulness weakens, the wisdom starts to weaken as well. It is also conditioned and it's dependent on conditions. So when it's not practiced, the wisdom can weaken. And we let that go for a while. And what will the result be? So this is so important in understanding that our sense of well-being is dependent on our mind. It's dependent on conditions. And it's actually very empowering when we really understand that how we live our life, how we experience our life, for a large part, will be dependent on what we've cultivated, how much we're meeting the present moment with some clarity, some awareness, knowing what's arising. And that becomes very clear that that's part of the equation. And that's what's impacting this moment. It's not random. So, why is seeing things this way helpful? And do I consider what caused me to feel a certain way? Or how do I bring this into my practice? For example, do I consider what caused me to feel a certain way? And why is seeing things this way helpful? This really is in the domain of right view that we've been exploring and talking about. In our normal way of experiencing the moment lacks right view, right? We don't, we don't see the Dhamma in the moment. And that's, in a way, the reason why an ordinary moment doesn't bring insight. When we've been talking to you about what to pay attention to, the very ordinary things, it's body sensations, it's noticing, seeing, noticing, hearing, noticing what you're feeling, noticing that there's a mind that's operating, directing attention at times, not directing attention. There's reactivities in the mind, different qualities, how it's relating to the experience. Very ordinary. So what's so transformative about paying attention to what's ordinary? When we take what's ordinary and we observe it through a lens that doesn't allow us to see the way things are, we can't gain insight. And then we take a very ordinary experience, the most ordinary experience in the world, and you see it through the lens of the Dhamma, and it can do something very profound. 
very ordinary experiences can wake the mind up to the lawfulness of the mind, that this is truly just cause and effect, mind and body experiences that are happening. And that we normally paint it over with this story about self, the story of I, mine, and then how much we react and how scared we are when things happen to this self. Yutejaniya tells the story of the one insight that he had. He's describing being in the shower using a soap. And it was probably in Burma because it was a scented soap. So it wasn't at a Western retreat center. <laughs> so you might not get this, this insight here. <laughs> uh, so he was showering and the aroma of the soap drifted up to his nostrils, I imagine. And he noticed, oh, it's the nose that smells. And he said, wow, it's the nose that smells. And he had this feeling that he wanted to go out and tell his family members that it's the nose that smells. And he realized he, they would think he was insane. <laughs> of course it's the nose that smells. And it's the eyes that see. So what was so impactful about that kind of insight? It's simply seeing that it's the process. When there's an odor and the functioning of the nose. And the attention was at the nose door, smelling happens. Totally distinct from light hitting the eyes and seeing happening. Totally distinct from sounds arising, impacting the ears. And when there's a working ear door, ear consciousness, sounds. I think uh, the physicist Richard Feynman, sort of paraphrasing him, but he said something like, if you're not astounded by the moment, you're not paying attention. And so in that moment, I would imagine Utejaniya was astounded by experiencing freshly the arising of smelling consciousness as a phenomenon, totally fresh, maybe the way a newborn baby would awaken to the experiences for the first time coming into consciousness. It's the power of mindfulness. It re-delivers our life to us freshly. Am I answering the question? Let's see. <laughs> Why is seeing these things this way helpful? Why is seeing things this way helpful? We need to put on the, the lens, the right lens, the right views in our mind. Uh, 
This is why ordinary experiences can become experiences that bring us understanding, and that our tendency to view experience through the lens of confusion, through lack of clarity, we're conditioned to see uh, experiences through an identification, through clinging that obscures just the natural unfolding of what's happening. So remind ourselves, oh, this is nature. This is what's happening. When we have the view, which is so easy to have the view, this is a bad experience. This is a good experience. So most of us would agree, I think, falling asleep when we're trying to meditate is a bad experience. Unless you have right view. Yeah, unless there's wisdom in the mind. We all agree. You know, conventionally, I'm trying to meditate. Falling asleep is a bad experience. I'm trying to be loving. So judging is a bad experience. Pain in the body is a bad experience. Sounds when I want quiet is a bad experience. We could say it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. These are views that arise in our mind that are so easy to not catch. They're conditioning how we look at our experience. And then we have to introduce the views that help us to open ourselves back to seeing the reality. So we say, things are the way they are. Things are arising because causes are there. Not good, not bad. There are experiences that we know cause suffering. Through our wisdom, we try and bring those to an end. But they too are arising lawfully in the sense that causes are there and this is what's happening. We will see many, many times in our own life, even though we've started our practice, our own unskillful actions. As much as we don't want to have unskillful actions, anger arise, judging, judgment arise, fear and anxiety arise. When we take it through the lens of the personal, the tendency is we're gonna meet it with another round of judgment. I shouldn't be doing this. So bad, I've got to stop that, I've got to cut it out. And, and then when, we're, when we remind ourselves that it's also the natural arising because the conditions are there that has led to anger, that has led to confusion, that has led to whatever mind state, whatever sense store that's happening. Oh, it's nature. And then what's the habit of mind that's meeting that? That's also nature. It's also been conditioned. So we say it's the conditioning of our experience that when we meet the unpleasant, it's natural in the sense. It's 
natural to recoil from it. We pull back, we close down. I don't want to feel that. And then it's natural when we're getting something pleasant, we want it, we move towards it. We'd say it's nature, it's a natural response. One teacher was hearing them describe the nature of the mind and heart uh, coming into the world as being this kind of pristine, open piece of paper. And that we get impacted by life in a certain way and we fold that corner down ouch, that hurts. I don't want to go there. Close it down. Something else happens in our life. Something makes us nervous and scared. So we try and avoid that. We close that down. Someone in our life is harmful and we shut that out. We go through life our own way and this nature of the mind and heart can get transformed into something a bit smaller. And so even though it was the natural responses, the nature of the mind, it isn't moving in the direction of freedom. And that's what the path of the Dharma is moving us towards. Can I be with things that are unpleasant? Can I open up that corner of the paper? Mindfulness allows us to do that. Seeing it as nature, something that can be observed, allows us to do that. Wise view, checking on the attitude in the mind. So difficult, painful experiences become approachable because now they're being held in the space of awareness, the space of clarity, this willingness to engage which we would normally be unconsciously avoiding, moving away from seeking security in ways that life can't bring security because life will bring to us what it does good experiences, when the causes are there, when the conditions are there, and then unpleasant experiences, unwished for experiences when those conditions are there. I find that having that perspective of lawfulness of experiences, it took a huge burden off of me, even took a huge burden off of my practice. It meant that I didn't have to get the right experience. I didn't have to change an unpleasant experience into a pleasant experience. It wasn't my job.
See, a lot of my early years of practice was really trying to, trying to free my heart, trying to be wise, get wisdom, trying to be loving. And the more that I was understanding that we can put in the conditions, dropping in moments of mindfulness, checking to see how we're viewing the experience, checking to see what the mind is doing. Is it reacting? Is it judging? So we can check and we can do what we can as far as the conditions. And then the results will be what they are. I was telling one group recently that uh, I was so accustomed to, to trying to get good experiences in my practice that I finally thought I was really getting a grip on a good experience. It's like, oh, this is a really good experience. In fact, I was getting very precious about the state of minds that were arising. Uh, there's at the center in Burma, uh, talking is allowed. And if you left the hall, it was quite possible someone would grab you and talk to you. And I was really not wanting to be disturbed out of my good experience. It's my good experience. And I was going to get to tell Seidel my really good experience. And there was a little tangent. There was a monk there um, who had a tendency to uh, once he got going with talking, he seemed to not be able to find the off button. So he could just go on and on for, not exaggerating, hours and hours and hours. I met him the very first day I arrived into the center. And I thought it was such a privilege that a monk was talking to me. Oh, wow, he can see that I've got potential. <laughs> he's a monk and he, he's clearly, you know, knows what he's doing, very wise. <laughs> we were talking in the afternoon, kept talking and talking and brought me back to his room, kept talking. Wow, I'm in a monk's room, this is really special. <laughs> the power, uh, at that time, power would fail frequently. It wasn't a generator. The lights went off. At that point, I was quite tired of hearing. <laughs> and he kept talking into the dark, into the, the night. That's <laughs> wild. And so after a while, obviously, I began to realize that that was his tendency. And so he was really the one who I was looking out for when I was having this very pleasant experience in the hall, wanting to preserve my my practice. And so I was kind of looking out, walking out, looking. Yeah. Got back to my room. Yeah, and so these really wonderful experiences continued to happen. Uh, and so I went to, when I had my interview, talked to Saido and Tejania, gave him the whole description of everything that was happening in my 
practice, my experiences. Just to give you one taste, I was at one point in my room, I was sure I was levitating. <laughs> my eyes were closed, so I, I can't tell you for sure whether or not I was. <laughs> so anyways, I was reporting to my practice, what was happening, and uh, convinced that he would be wowed by my experiences and as I was going on and on, you know, he looked very bored, <laughs> probably yawned, I don't remember. And then he said, so? And? What'd you learn? What'd you learn? I, was, I was told the group I, I didn't talk to him for about a month <laughs> <laughs> after that. I was attached to my my good experience. But what it did at that moment, and it really was hitting, hitting the mark for me, was that I hadn't realized that I was still searching, trying to get the results, trying to get a good experience, and that I was getting attached to pleasant and reacting to the unpleasant. There was still so much judging in my mind, I hadn't seen it. And I could say that was, that was really a very powerful moment for me. It was an opening where I really, not, ex, not an experience, it wasn't a great experience, but the wisdom began to really show up of what it was that we're doing in our practice. And there's a reason why mindfulness is so powerful. It's a non-interfering quality of mind that's simply with the nature of things, nature of what's happening. And when we learn how to be with the way things are, we can have some very deep understandings about the mind and heart, that things are in a state of change, that every moment is a new moment that's arising. It's a very ordinary statement. Every moment is a new moment. But when the mind's awake and it really knows an ordinary thing, it's a very deep understanding. So the breath becomes a new breath. Our loved ones arise in our seeing new, fresh. Our conditioned reactions to them arise new, even though they may have appeared many times. It's new, right? So the mindfulness is waking us up to our, our life again. Even boredom, it's interesting, boredom can become new in a moment. That was a radical change in my mind when I was experiencing boredom with interest. Obviously it was, boredom didn't have a chance against interest. 
the wholesome qualities of mind, they're very powerful. But for moments, you know, there could be some boredom hanging out with that or sleepiness coming into the mind. Just getting interested. Oh, what's happening? So the last question here was, will it lead to letting go? And how? How does seeing cause and effect lead to letting go? And this is in the domain of the aspect of wisdom, when we see the nature of things. The mind's relationship to it is not one through clinging. It's not one through identification. And I've always appreciated that phrase that uh, I think comes from Saito that says, it's not you that lets go. It's wisdom that does that. And that if letting go were an act of will, then we could let go of things. We could let go of patterns of mind. If we're, we're an act of will. And then, the beauty of being with things as they are, is that we can simply be with things as they are. So when we see even the defilements that arise, the clinging, the aversion, the frustration, the boredom, we can be with that because that's what's there. Trying to not be bored, trying to be free of habits of mind is simply resisting and denying the way it is. And it's exercising again another round of wrong view and judging in the mind, which tends to keep us locked into a pattern of identifying, taking it personally. Very simply also, even, I think I said this maybe in the opening days, that seeing something as nature, just bringing that to mind already can have an impact. It's so often when I'm caught into a mood, it's amazing what remembering that it's a mood does. I already know that I'm in a mood. I know how I'm feeling. 
but I'm still caught into the identification of it and probably feeding the subtle thoughts that are creating the mood. And then again, as soon as I remember, oh right, this is a mood. This is the way this feels. It's unpleasant. And the mind is thinking these thoughts and it's believing these thoughts. And the whole thing is convincing enough that the mood keeps getting fed over and over again. Oh, that's what's happening. So we see this over and over again, over and over again. And slowly the mind gains insights into how this whole process happens. And then at some point, a thought that normally would have convinced us immediately into a mood, into a a state of shame or inner critic would be empty, just a thought. A snapshot of a movie that's being seen and recognized and its power to induce the mood has been seen, it's released. We don't need to do anything anymore about that. It's just by seeing clearly the way it is, the mind is released from that condition, the power of that. See if there's, in this domain of topic, if there's any kind of questions that come to mind around what's been shared so far, around right views, cause and effect, anything that you're noticing in your practice. Yeah. I feel stupid asking this question. But awareness is the is mind unhindered. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, awareness is a quality of the unhindered mind. So all this other stuff, you know, the defilements and the that's a part of my mind, but it's not the clear mind. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like I get a little confused with. I get confused into uh, thinking about it. I don't the. the experiencing it, I understand what aware, I, I, I can be aware, I can know what's clear, but uh, like, it seems like there's these minds all mixed up. Right, yeah, so it seems like there's awareness and there's all these other things going on. Um, does anybody else have that? <laughs> uh, so that's seeing the nature of the mind, right? There's Awareness can be very clear at times, and then maybe there's clarity in the mind. And then there's sometimes even there's awareness, and there's all this other stuff that's happening. The mind can be racing with thoughts and doubts and questions and mind states and emotions. And we can even then be aware, which would normally feel like, how is that possible? We can be aware of greed, we can be aware of aversion, and when we really start to understand the nature of mindfulness, 
the nature of awareness, as you're saying, it has a quality. What is the quality of awareness? It simply knows. So that when we know that the mind is aware, it's knowing. And then we start to become more sensitive to, oh, the mind isn't simply just being aware, it's also reacting. Well, that's not awareness reacting, it's another function of the mind that's in there also. Right, so then we're getting more sensitive to the attitudes and the judgments that are coming along with our practice. And unless we're being mindful of how we're practicing, this is why we've been encouraging this a bit, is that we can miss that, these very important aspects of what's happening in a moment, which is not just the object, the experience, the breath or the body, but along with the mindfulness, there may be some wanting, some uncertainty, some reactivity, some identification. Can we also get interested in those qualities that maybe feel like they're in the awareness because they come right with it, but they're actually different functions that we can also be mindful of. And we get more and more refined, you know, in how we're relating to the different experiences as we, you know, as we check more and we just familiarize ourselves increasingly with the mind that's being aware of the, the experience. So we really start to ask, okay, how am I relating to this? Is it simply the knowing of it? And, you know, most often there isn't going to be simply the knowing of it. There's going to be a sense of identification so we can learn about how, how does the experience get impacted when we're really identified with it. And then we're seeing it more as just a phenomenon. So like pain in my body, you know, in the beginning when it was so identified, it was overwhelming to watch pain. And then as the mind was clear about the sensations, and there was less clinging in the mind, oh, it's changing sensations that are unpleasant, and then it's making the mind reactive. Oh, that's aversion, and just seeing that and learning about that whole process, right, is giving us some understanding. But the fact that you're seeing that there's awareness and a lot of other stuff, right, that's the mindfulness that's getting stronger. And this, this is what we have to in some ways endure in the beginning is that we're going to really see a lot of stuff in the mind. A lot of it we don't necessarily want to see, or we had assumed our mind doesn't do that, but our mind does do that. You know, whatever we see, it's doing it, you know. And the more we really do kind of have this playful, and you know, in some ways playful approach to it, it's just seeing it as the mind, the mind doing its thing. All right, that's you know, this reaction. It's doing that again, rather than I've got to stop it, which is not really understanding how the mind is conditioned by habits. These habits have been put in place so many times. Is that kind of? Yeah, I think so. So I, I have this image like a big muddy snowball. Mm -hmm. like ice is awareness, and mm -hmm. then there's all this other dirt, but it's all like wrapped up together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that kind of the mind? <laughs> if, it, if, that's, if that's your mind, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if your mind feels like a muddy snowball, just knowing it. it, it this, is the way, this is the way this mind feels right now. It feels like a muddy snowball. 
And maybe tomorrow it'll, it'll feel like a, a beautiful snow person. You know, like just, ah. Oh. And then however it changes, but that's, that's what we're experiencing. And just being aware of sometimes we're thinking about how the experience is and we're overlaying our story on top of the experience versus simply how does this experience look right now? How does it feel? We don't need to even get in there and figure it out too much. Just the immediacy of, oh, the mind's not clear. Okay, can I just be with that? The mind's not particularly clear right now. Or it feels like there's awareness with all this other stuff. Uh, it feels like that. And maybe that's going to change in a few seconds. You know, or maybe it takes longer. But you're just with whatever, whatever comes. Do you want to add anything to that? No. Okay. Five questions? Okay. I just have one right now. Oh, okay. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's that help, help, going to be that helpful to ask, but I have to ask. So, mm-hmm. so uh, along the lines of what uh, this woman was saying right mm-hmm. here, so awareness is just a facet of the mind, because kind of in my, in my experience, it feels like almost something separate. Mm-hmm. There may be different views. You know, awareness is one of those topics that have a lot of different perspectives on it. I think, you know, from the direct experience, one of the things that I, c- I know really clearly directly is that I'm not always aware of what's happening in the moment. So even if awareness is this function that may be a quality that is unconditioned or always knowable, we're not always awake to what's happening or to the fact that awareness is present. And it's like a mirror. As soon as you look in the mirror, oh, it's reflecting. There you are. And then you don't look. And so it's, who knows how the nature on a absolute level, but on a practical level of really knowing how is the mind functioning, we can really see sometimes awareness is being known as it's knowing the experience as it's arising. So we're aware that seeing is happening right now. Oh yeah, now we're aware, we're noticing that when we bring the attention to that place, suddenly we can recognize seeing is happening. Then we bring the attention to another place and now we're awake, aware to the hearing, that hearing is happening, or whatever other things that we start to wake up to, and just noticing how, as we cultivate that capacity, the strength of that mindfulness continues, it just grows, and it becomes more and more the way the mind is functioning. And really, I've, I've found that the the benefit of understanding how to cultivate mindfulness in a way that feels, you know, natural, this organic, natural mind, um, is really seeing the effortlessness of mindfulness as soon as we remember an aspect of our, of our experience. Mindfulness, awareness, is simply knowing the experience, that it doesn't take work 
for awareness to reflect, to know the experience. But what takes that work is to remind ourselves that we're not aware, that we're not being mindful in that moment. Then, you know, as that becomes more integrated into the mind, the natural tendency is that the mind is meeting experience through wakefulness, through mindfulness. And the wisdom, you know, continues to evolve and grow and the mindfulness, I'd say, gets more refined in terms also of what it, what it can know. More refined into how we get caught, how wrong views can slip in, where our patterns are, what's worth waking up to. So it's, you know, this is also just a way to explore the practice is just, you know, is to see even if awareness is always present, is the mind always knowing? Is it always awake or does it come and go? You know, and usually we see, all right, of course, the mind is not always knowing what's what's happening in the moment. So this is, then we can cultivate that experience, that process of developing the continuity of mindfulness. That kind of yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a big question, and you know, from the level of practice, uh, I just find, in some ways, you know, because some schools of of teaching, like you know, the Thai Forest tradition, where the awareness becomes the unconditioned, or some quality of that, you know, and even if it is the case, the cultivation is still going to happen, where we are going to increasingly wake the mind up so that it is abiding in this clarity of knowing. And we can have the idea whether it's permanent or not permanent. It almost doesn't matter because there's still the mind that's going to be cultivated. And, that, and when the more we see what it is that leads us into uh, distractedness, forgetfulness, what, is, what it is that wakes us up, how the impact of not seeing the nature of things, how that impacts the mind, that this is also part of how the mind develops. Right. Yeah. I, I, so is it possible to report these special experiences in a way that is useful? And I, I, so maybe I wasn't very clear about it, but what he was really noticing was that I was simply really liking my experience without much understanding. So that if I had reported those experiences with some degree of understanding, his mind, his, you know, he would have I would have seen the sense of joy that I was understanding the Dhamma. I was understanding something. That's what we call a special experience. And it really does feel special when the mind understands something. Because, you know, we will visit many states all along our our journey. Habits of mind that are very unpleasant and then very pleasant states of mind. And we, you know, we'll just oscillate all along the way and all along the way, we have a choice of growing our understanding, growing the wholesome qualities of mind. And that really is what's transforming our, these tendencies that we have and, and ultimately is what's giving us this sense of freedom. Because the more we see that a state is truly dependent and conditioned 
on those particular conditions, we know it's totally fle fleeting. It's gone. The moments it's, ha it's happened, it's gone. So we can have the most extraordinary experience and it's gone. If there's no legacy of understanding, the mind hasn't changed. If there's no legacy of something that's been impactful in it, it's not leading us you know, on the path of the Dharma. So, you know, the more that we, in very small ways, can be very impactful, like when we really see some little tendency of mind, of wanting, of aversion, and that that becomes interesting and the practice has matured into that place, oh, wow, that's a big change. Or some place that we've been unawake, unaware, and we're developing the continuity of mindfulness in the place of relationship, in relating, in anything that's happening, it's like the mindfulness is really, the practice is growing, it's maturing. So then we really can see how states are not the path, right? Because it, they're just going to be a very beautiful thing, maybe this bright, beautiful, you know, you know, feels awesome and amazing. And if we've clung to it, and if we've really liked to it, really liked it, what's going to happen? When it changes, it's going to change we're going to suffer. And to the de degree that we've, we've attached to it, to that degree, we're going to want it back and hurt. Or if we've really identified with it, it becomes this constant effort to get back to it, get back to that state. And we're not, we're missing all of that, all of that information, which could be, oh, there's that desire to get back to that state. That's what the mind is doing. That itself is, is the understanding of the practice, the craving, the desire. Which is why very ordinary experiences, when there's some understanding, is, is, that's, you know, that's the unfolding of the path, the practice. You know, then it's, it's like, great, I don't have to get a good state. Great. If the mind is going to be a dirty snowball, <laughs> that's awesome. Let it be a dirty snowball because that's what's there, right? And then it's like, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to fix myself. I just need to learn about what's happening. Okay, it's time. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have uh, 30, I believe, 30 minutes to do your free range yogi thing. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever that takes you, whatever mind states that takes you into, and just be there for it. And we'll see you, see you in a little bit.